I see you shiver with anticipation. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. Make it three yards, motherfucker, and we'll have an automobile race. I'll leave you. I'll leave you, baby. I'll leave you. Now leave me alone. Private Charles Pontagon, ethnography specialist, communications platoon, headquarters, company reporting, sir. Splendid. Pump it, Nicole. A plump picture. Nicole, splendid. Movies podcast. I'm Anthony King. Uh, we are back here, Vinny. Two weeks in a row. It is. It is like super official. You are a, a super official co-host here. Uh, around these parts, we love Danny Perry. He is a he is an author, a critic, a historian, and uh, we love his cult movies book. So what we're going to do? We're going to talk about a movie from the first book, and then we're going to offer up some pairing recommendations on the second half of the program. And returning to the... Oh, wait. Mr. DeMille, she's ready for her close-up. Our guest for this week is Carmelita Valdez. How are you, Carmelita? (laughs) I am big. It's the pictures that got small. (laughs) It's true. And we're going to talk about how small those pictures really are. Uh, thanks for coming back, Carmelita. Uh, you were here last season for a Western, was it? It was another William Holden, wasn't it? Yeah, it was not my intention to hog all the <laughs> William Holden movies, but here I am. Yeah, uh, I couldn't help myself. To- I'm so happy to be back. I had so much fun talking movies with you last time, <laughs> and now I get the added treat of Vinny is joining us as well. So this is awesome. Thank you. Yay. Uh, yeah, so William Holden in two very different roles. Uh, very different. So we're going to get right into it. Carmelita, go ahead and introduce what we're talking about this week. Oh, so it is my supreme pleasure to introduce the film we're talking about this week, one of my personal favorites. It's a masterpiece directed by the incomparable Billy Wilder, Sunset Boulevard from 1950. My mother's birth year, 1950. Uh, real special. It was a great year. Real special year, that's right. Um, all right, let's talk about histories, our histories with the film. Uh, Vinny, you were... So, w- a little peek behind the curtains here. I kind of throw out uh, upcoming episodes to Vinny and Chris and say, do you guys want to jump on any of these? And Vinny is like, I love Sunset Boulevard. Vinny, tell I me do. about your history with the movie. Yeah. So, this was... Uh... A really early discovery for me uh, when I first started getting into classic film uh, in high school. And it's one of those movies where you're like, oh, I hear this is good. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, this is pretty much a perfect movie. Like there's not really movies aren't going to get better than this. And that's just how I felt. I watch it every year. 
at least once. And that's how I've always felt about it. I think in terms of acting direction, art direction, screenplay, everything, this movie is as perfect as a movie needs to be and succeeds on every single front. And it has every, it gives you every single emotion that you can imagine in its pretty reasonable runtime. So I've always felt it was a, one of the few perfect films. That's awesome. Uh, Carmelita, what about your history with Sunset Boulevard? Oh, so I first saw this in my early 20s and instantly fell in love with it. And it's one that I revisit very often. And it's it's like when I watch this movie, I can feel my heart swelling in my chest. Like it gives me that feeling and I was in preparation I was like watching all the extra you know special features on the DVD and even other people talking about the movie I can feel just my heart is so ooey gooey and I just love this movie so much and it continues to speak to me on so many levels the artistry of it uh, the experience of watching it and getting wrapped up in the story and then also just there's some relatability in this which no one needs to be worried about me i'm okay but (laughs) (laughs) i think this i think the characters in this are a lot more relatable than people want to admit and so yeah i just love it so much and i'm just so excited to talk about it with you guys it just oh it just makes me so happy you know uh so this is only the second time i've watched i watched this afternoon with my four-year-old uh, him, Rowan, sitting there with rapt attention at my phone, playing a video game, not watching the movie. But he was there with me, so it counts. It's his. It's his first time watching Sunset Boulevard. Uh, so <clears throat> this was my <clears throat> excuse me, my second time watching this, and I really loved it the first time. Uh, this time, it, I really understood. Like the, I, I really got the genius of it, and it moves at such a wonderful clip. Like, there's no downtime in this movie. And uh, Carmelita, talking about the relativity of it, uh, it, like, I hated Norma Desmond the first time I watched this. And I was like, she's such a a diva, obviously, right? Uh, But this time around, I felt for her, and I was like, yes, I get you. Yes, I'm on your side 100%. And uh, it's... Man, what a what a masterpiece. Before we go any further, let me read something real quick from Danny. Now, this, I would assume, he wouldn't really call this a cult movie. This is probably, um, oh, I can't think of what letter he would use in the in the guide. But um, so there's not much about what he writes. Like he, he doesn't write much about the cult, per se, surrounding Sunset Boulevard. Uh, but here here's a little snippet of something he wrote he says swanson is dynamic her norma perfectly complements and eventually dwarfs joe gillis she not only delivers lines with the power of betty davis but she has the added capacity of being able to transmit emotions with the tricks of a consummate silent screen actress on the other hand holden's bland joe by design can only get his thoughts across verbally and never with the help of facial expressions and gestures Sunset Boulevard broke new ground with its conception of a love affair between a woman and a much younger man. And I love that he writes 
not an older woman and a younger man. He says a woman and a much younger man. And Joe acts as revolted by it as many hostile view viewers were in 1950. But Norma suffers none of the middle-aged anxiety of Betty Davis in All About Eve. Unlike Margot Channing, Norma is aware that she is still beautiful and talented. Joe may not uh, be attracted to her, but she is more desirable in her own way than he is. She is vital and is looking toward the future when she can return to the screen and appease the fans she feels she deserted. Joe is dead, literally and figuratively, too cynical and lazy to make a real go of it, even with the ambitious Betty's prodding. Like many noir heels, Joe only has the energy and cleverness to try to milk someone he thinks beneath him. Uh, and if you haven't seen this movie, spoilers in that reading, I'm very sorry, but go watch it real quick and then come back and listen to this. Um, because right off the bat, it's sort of that record scratch, you know, uh, uh, yep, that's me. I bet you're wondering how I got here. And then we get into the story. Um, and, and thinking this 1950, it's got to be like one of the first times that happens in film, don't you think? Oh, most definitely. Yeah, to open it with a dead man in the pool and the dead man is narrating and letting you know, yeah, I'm dead. And, you know, let me let me tell you the story. <laughs> how I got here. Uh, I love it. Vinny, let me ask you, uh, do you are, are you on a side in this movie? Are you on Norma's side? Are you on Joe's side? Do you pick a side or are you just along for the ride? I don't really pick a side. I, I, I like the way that there are two characters just sort of use each other at the same time. And they're both, they're both extremely tragic characters. So it's, I like the way that I love the way that their stories blend into the one. And I'm just so on for the ride. Uh, Carmelita. Now, how, how would you uh, talking about how relative it is in 2022? Um, in what ways do you see that? In some ways, I think it's almost more relatable than it was even in 1950. Um, you know, we look at Norma Desmond and, and she's she's clinging to this past when she was when she had the admiration of the world and all of this validation from the public and the fa adoring fans and she's in her home and it's an extension of her mind and it's she's surrounded by images beautiful images of herself that conjure up this glamorous past and nowadays Anybody can have their 15 minutes on the internet. And who doesn't get a little thrill when someone retweets your post on Twitter or likes your social media post on Facebook or watches your TikTok or whatever it is? How many of us are surrounded, probably now, today, more than any point in history with pictures of ourselves? People have full camera rolls of pictures of themselves that capture themselves the way they want to be remembered and maybe not the way they actually are. Mm. So I, I think in some ways we all can relate to that, that wanting to connect with people. Cause that's really what Norma Desmond wants is to connect. And, and I don't want to jump to the end, but in her, her final dialogue to Mr. DeMille, who is not there, 
Um, she says that it's you and me and those people in the dark. Like that's what she wants is, is connection. And, and I think we can all relate to that, trying to connect to people from a distance in a way that not even in 1950, they could do. And I, I feel like uh, that as time goes on, I feel like the Norma character, when you first hear about the movie, it's always like, Oh, this is about this crazy lady kind of like, clinging on to her youth but then you realize like as you get older and as you watch it more it's like extremely relatable as to her like she had this peak and she doesn't want to let that go at all and she hasn't accepted that she has to let that go to move on with her life and it just becomes like oh i you totally get you understand why she is the way that she is i mean not to the extreme but it's it's far more understandable oh definitely yeah she's extreme but it's I think we all have those moments of like, you pass a mirror and you look at yourself like, whoa, what was that? I didn't, I didn't see that line before or that there's like a new crop of gray hair that just came up or, you know, whatever it is that when we're kind of confronted with the, that residual self-image, it's kind of like the matrix, you know, how when, when Neo gets, it gets explained to him what the matrix is and he, why he looks the way he does in the matrix. It's that residual self-image. We imagine ourselves a certain way. And it's usually that younger version of ourselves or that, that more, uh, we have a more flattering self-image and it's, it can be hard to accept that, that that image has to change because that life has changed. Hmm. But I think too, one thing that really, as time goes on that I think more and more about is Norma Desmond is in a lot of ways like Frankenstein's monster. She's in some ways kind of grotesque, just how um, imperious she is and dramatic and, and how delusional she is and, and, you know, kind of how she's got Max living and how she's got Joe living and, and, you know, her, that fragile ego and and how everyone has to kind of tiptoe around it but she's also very sympathetic and and she didn't make herself that way the industry had a part and max as like the ultimate codependent enabler had a part <laughs> all these people in her life have had a part in in feeding this delusion that she has that she doesn't have to move on so it's it's all very there's so many shades of gray and and Vinny had a great point people using each other everyone here is a little guilty of opportunism mm -hmm. kind of taking for granted or taking for you know advantage or using someone else for their own gain. Now let's talk about Gloria Swanson real quick here. So uh she is uh her her portrayal of Norma Desmond in my opinion, is like ultimate camp. You know, she, during this, you know, one of her screenings, she stands up and she, you know, she's like Hamlet holding the apple, uh, you know, like lo looking off into God knows where and like just overplaying it so much. Or like, you know, I mean, hand on the forehead numerous times in the film. And uh, it, she is so good and when we first so when we first see her um and then so, sort of at the end like that famous shot of her you know creeping towards the camera um it's ugly she she's ugly she's playing this ugly character and it looks ugly and it looks kind of uh old and crazy 
But in the middle of the film, Gloria Swanson, at the time she's, what, 50, 51 years old? Right. You would never guess. She looks like a 30-year-old woman, like her, and they even go through, like, when she's getting ready for her big, you know, uh, not uh, comeback, what does she call it? Return. Uh, return. Her big return. Like, you know, she's getting her the massage and all the face creams and all that shit. Um, it's working. She looks damn good, is what I'm saying. Gloria Swanson looks real, real fine in this movie. Um, and then, you know, she's got this this man who's 20 years her junior. And William uh, Holden, nothing to sneeze at. He's a good looking guy, too. Oh, he uh, But gosh, she is, uh, you know, just to be as uh, surface level and gross as possible. She's real good looking in this movie. <laughs> oh, she is. Well, and this is, you know, I love how meta this film is, but one very important distinction to make is that Gloria Swanson is, was not at all like Norma Desmond. Oh yeah. In real life. Now she was a silent movie star who had been this fashion icon and one of those it girls of the silent era. And she had worked with DeMille. So those, those details do parallel her life, but in her own life, she was not a recluse. She was not stuck in the past. She was a vibrant lady. She continued to work. Uh, she owned her own business. She was very health conscious and forward thinking she herself was nothing like Norma. And I think it's important to note that because Norma Desmond, that's an act. Right. She's not playing herself. Right. And so it's brilliant, her performance. Well, that, that kind of goes, you know, originally the original um, two actors they considered were Marlon Brando and Mae West, who... Mm -hmm really was like that <laughs> you know <laughs> hi boys you know like she was the cartoon character that all the cartoon characters are based on she was norma desmond and so like it is so hard for me to imagine it doesn't work with brando no. and with may west are you kidding me come on um and so i think that's why like the character of norma desmond as played by Gloria Swanson, is like ultimate camp. And I love, I love camp. Just, I adore camp so much. And so that's why I think, like, she has got to be, like, a gay icon of some sort, I would assume, because I, she, oh, yeah. she's just the best. She's so good at playing this character. Oh, she's got it all. She's... She's got that um, that really biting sense of humor, and and she's got all of her little quips and jabs, and she's just so glamorous. And even though she has those moments where you know she's got her fingers twisted into this like claw, <laughs> but she also you know she'll she'll throw her head back, and you get that beautiful the the line of her. Um, uh, her profile. We need to bring back profile posing for <laughs> pictures, people. It's there is nothing, nothing. It's the it's like the living end when you get that beautiful line of a profile, and she just she poses and she struts and she's, yeah, she's amazing. 
Uh, can we talk about the dead monkey? Yes. Uh, R.I.P. Joe Gillis is very insensitive to this <laughs> very tragic moment. It, it is very tragic. Uh, but uh, since this was only my second time watching it, and the first time I watched it, it was years ago. And so I completely forgot about the dead chimp. <clears throat> and when she pulls the blanket back, I was like, the fuck is that? Is that a chimp? Uh, so what's what's with the dead chimp? Uh, I yeah. mean, this is more of that crazy old Hollywood, right? Right. Oh, yeah. You know, you have this crazy mansion with the bowling alley in the basement and the swimming pool and the tiled dance floor in the living room and your own personal screening room for films. And you have a pet chimpanzee. It, it, it's Vinny's house, by the way. That's how Vinny lives. You know? That's how I live my life. <laughs> oh, well, I'm jealous because I would, I would live in Norma Desmond's house living like a heartbeat. I think it's, I think it's awesome. It's a little creepy, and I, that's what I like about it. Oh, yeah. It. I yeah. love when he compares her to Miss Havisham from Great Expectations. Because <laughs> it's, so, it's so true in, like, the most wonderful way. Yeah, the, you know, just, it, it's almost like, um, well, it, so there's a story about how, uh, like, after the initial screenings around the country, they screened it in Los Angeles, and um, who was it, Louis B. Mayer, like, stood up and, like, screamed oh, at yeah. Billy Wilder in the theater in front of everybody. He's like, how could you shit all over this industry that, like, made you? And uh, we all know that guy was an asshole anyways, but uh, uh, I'm, I, I love Wilder and uh, Charles Brackett is writing part. This is their last, uh, right? Is that right? Uh, Vinny, do you know, is this, this was their last. I'm not positive. Okay. No. I think it was their last movie. Just something like that. Uh, but then uh, DM Marshman Jr. Took a, a third pass at it, but I love their interpretation of old Hollywood where these old starlets are, are like living as recluses and they're hermits in their dilapidated old mansions. And it's very shout out to cobwebs podcast, very Gothic. It's like this yeah. very, uh, like, especially the outside, this, this Gothic looking, uh, horrific. And Danny talks about in his essay a lot, uh, the horror elements of sunset Boulevard and some could consider it a horror movie. And I would, would not argue that fact. Um, but then you go inside and it is the, the, you know, the screening room, the tile floor. Uh, it is, you know, the winding staircase up to the top and it's very opulent and very old Hollywood on the inside, but on the outside, it's this dilapidated, like Gothic, uh, haunted house looking thing. And I love their interpretation of, you know, it's, a lot, you know, we, we talk about new Hollywood, you know, in the late sixties and the seventies with, uh, Lucas and Spielberg, Copeland, De Palma and all those guys. Um, uh, but like this was a sort of changing of the guard too, of course, not 1950 earlier, but like Billy Wilder's time where they're coming out of like the silent early classic Hollywood. And then these guys are starting to do something new and pissing off the old guard and I love watching that happen on screen because I can just envision these like old crony studio execs like, what are they doing? This is not how movies are supposed to be. 
And then we get this masterpiece that is Sunset Boulevard that uh, I think will be timeless. I mean, obviously, it's been timeless for the past 70 years. In another 70 years, people are still going to be raving about the genius of it. Oh, yeah, it's wild. And when you think about like. So I I mean, I went whole hog in like immersing myself in preparation for this because I love this movie so much and any excuse. I appreciate it. And so I I went back and I I was watching some of Gloria Swanson's silent films and and one of her early talkies. And and thinking about how some of those films are 100 years old. Oh yeah, right. And 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 just the thought that Sunset Boulevard is now 70 years old. I mean, that's, it just blows my mind. And, and how wonderful that we get to still experience these. And, and also the cyclical nature of these things. Like when she's giving her rant to Joe Gillis, when, when, when he finally is able to get through to her that he's not the undertaker that's going to help her prepare for the monkey funeral. <laughs> <laughs> and he tells her he's a writer and she gives him this whole rant about how talking ruined movies. And, and she, I mean, and she's going off about the producers and the money men and, and the words talk, 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 talk. And it, it got me thinking about, you know, we hear these stories of prominent directors from the seventies who were railing against low box office turnout for anything other than superhero movies and everyone kind of likes to have a chuckle at their expense, the old man shouting at the clouds. But every generation, this happens, right? Right. Like, anytime there's a shift, this happens. It's happening now, and it'll happen again, because that's, you know, that's life. <laughs> Scorsese forever. Forever and yes. ever. Yes. I mean, ever. I get what he's saying. I, I sympathize. <laughs> you know, so, but I I think that's something that this captures really well is like you mentioned that changing of the guard and, totally. and how this is always difficult when there's an upheaval well okay people well, don't know where they fit anymore think about our lives so we're all around the same age and we've i'm 18 vinny's 18 <laughs> he does a lot of drugs and drinks a lot of whiskey and that's why he looks like he's 97 yep um <laughs> uh the uh god damn i can't remember what the hell i was gonna say now <laughs> We're all the same age. Okay, we're going, we're going to, we have experienced a lot of shit in our lives. And, and like we, uh, I guess I can't, I can't speak for everybody, but me, like, you know, I'm turning 40 here in a couple of weeks and um, I don't want to. <laughs> I mean, I, I did some real stupid shit when I was younger, but I also had some like really good times and I look back you know, especially like pre pre pandemic. Right. And it's like, Oh, remember when I could do this and like, uh, I wouldn't hurt my neck or, uh, remember just stuff like that. And we, I think it's human nature to hold on to what we love and what we have grown to known to known to know, um, because it feels comfortable. And so in that way I can understand directors of the past like fighting against the changing of the guard uh because we can all sympathize with that but also shut the fuck up uh movies gotta grow man so 
let it, you know, let it be. The old movies, you know, Vinny and I talk about it all the time. We watch movies, older movies, almost exclusively. They're always going to be there. And there's lots of movies to keep discovering. And so, you know, it is what it is. We don't have to watch the new movies. We can keep celebrating the older ones. Um, but also, it. I do... <laughs> As much as I love those guys, I do get a little sick of old man yells at cloud, um, you know, every other week on social media. And it's like, who the, f- who cares? Just, just watch what you love, man. Whatever. So I want to welcome you to your forties. <laughs> the water's just fine, my friend. I know it's all right. I I go back and forth on this, and I and I think that's one of the things and we've i mean we're, we've been kind of touching on that in our conversation that this movie like you feel it on a different level across the years as you revisit it mm. and and you find yourself having those norma desmond moments um you know and i there's there's a line joe gillis says to her when when he's finally like had it and he's going to confront her with the hard truth. And he says to her that it's not, it's not a tragedy to be 50. It's, you know, it's only tragic if you're trying to be 25 and, uh, and he's not wrong. No, 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 no. He's not wrong, but he also kind of lacks that sympathy of, you know, it's an adjustment. It's an adjustment. He had, yeah, he, he does not have the soft touch one needs uh, when you're dealing with a diva, who is, you know, getting into her 50s and like her career has passed. It's like, can we at least approach her with kid gloves here, my friend? Like, you don't oh. have to be a cold hearted asshole immediately just because uh, things haven't gone your way. And going back, like before he even meets Norma, you know, he's he goes and meets with his agent on the golf course and his agent is like pushing him like right out of desperation like you have nothing left this is where the good stuff's going to come from uh yet yet joe feels like everything is owed to him i mean he's he's a classic white guy uh everything is owed to him he deserves it all um you know he's tired of he's like what a script doctor something like that um and he's gonna lose his car and but uh, i like how his agent even though you know He's a looks like a white asshole man playing golf. He he's like, you gotta work for it, man. Like you don't you don't just get what's owed. And then he goes, Joe, and goes and meets this woman who has worked for it and was kind of pushed out of the spotlight, uh, but now is sort of in the same place where she still thinks she deserves the spotlight. And she's sort of old man yells at cloud where it's like, I'm really sorry, but things have, have moved on. Um, unrightfully, like, you know, when, when she goes to meet, uh, DeMille and then she leaves and he's like, uh, you know, we don't want her, but we need her car. Can we rent her car? It's like, ugh, ugh, what an asshole. Oh, we got to talk about that scene. Don't let me forget, but please continue. Um, uh, Real quick here, I want to, uh, let's start with Vinny. Vinny, who is Norma Desmond of 2022? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Madonna. 
Okay. I think you're right. Oh no, really? <laughs> you might be right. I don't know. In, ter- I don't know. in terms I don't know. of the, you know, latching on to something that's gone and not accepting the times have changed, I would say Madonna. <laughs> you might be right. Um, Carmela, did you have any other answers? <laughs> <laughs> I, said I don't. I said. You ca- you caught me off guard with this one, but I mean, I don't. Vinny's not wrong. Uh, well, I mean, I wrote down Faye Dunaway, even though oh. she she was a a diva, and this is you know pre pandemic. What's she doing these days? I'm Nothing. Nobody wants to work anything. with her because she's a uh, crazy. Lady. Well, she's also like eighty. Uh, well, I guess there's a big difference between being fifty and eighty. <laughs> fifty and eighty. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, but still, I can imagine like <laughs> Faye Dunaway is Norma Desmond, like on a daily basis. She's like, I'm owed everything. Where has the spotlight gone for Faye Dunaway? Um, that's my Faye Dunaway impression, everyone. It's really good. It's no, spot no. on. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's, I mean, we can jump around all we want. Uh, Carmelita, let's talk about the Cecil B. DeMille scene. Oh, Norma Desmond's return to Paramount is one of my favorite sequences in the whole movie. It's so good. And I get choked up. I cry like every time. (laughs) I was sitting in my living room yesterday, just like bawling my eyes out, rewatching it again. Every time I think today, this is the time I'm not going to cry. No, every time. (laughs) And I, and when you were talking about that scene, I was thinking, I wish that Joe had gone in and had seen seen her. Yeah. Because there's this beautiful thing that happens and it starts from when they come in the gate and they're not going to let her in. And, and Max says, we don't need an appointment. We don't need a pass. This is Norma Desmond. And the younger guard says, Norma, who? He has no idea who Norma Desmond is. Imagine if Faye Dunaway pulled up to a movie lot. They're like, do you know who this is? This is Faye Dunaway. And the guards are going to be like, who the, who the fuck is that? Anyways, I'm sorry, Carmelita. Go ahead. <laughs> she she calls out to Jonesy, the older guard who's been there forever. And we all know Jonesy, a Jonesy. I had a bartender oh, actually named I Jonesy who he knew exactly what I wanted. Yeah. And he still calls her Miss Desmond. And he says, no, Miss Desmond doesn't need a pass. Miss Desmond comes right through. And he follows them over there. And, you know, when when she talks with DeMille, he talks to her like the old days. And and on his part, it's it's also because he's kind of trying to spare himself the grief of having to confront her with the truth. Um, but when she sits down in that chair and and one of the guys who's rigging the lights notices her and calls down to her. And he shines a spotlight on her and all of the older actors on the set of Samson and Delilah, the actual set of Samson and Delilah, because Samson and Delilah was being filmed at that time. DeMille was filming that, which is another film I love, love Samson and Delilah. So all of these older actors come around and surround her and you hear really clearly, and this is the one that gets me. One of the gentlemen says, Welcome home, Miss DeMille. Yeah. I mean, welcome home, Miss Desmond. And oh my God, it's like my heart breaks every time because she's not the only one who misses those old days. She means something to them just as much 
as they mean something to her. They all have this collective history that means something to them and this time that's, you know, long past. And I think it's really beautiful that she she gets that moment to be acknowledged by people that actually care about her. Yeah. All of those fake fan letters that she, you know, that Max sends that kind of give this illusion. That's all smoke and mirrors. But those people on that set that had worked with her and knew her personally from around the lot, those people do care about her. I I really love just the, especially, again, on the lot, but when um, uh, Joe and Betty are riding at night and they walk mm. around, they walk through one of the sets being, you know, set up. Oh, so cool. And, you know, we, we hear about these stories about, you know, the writers had, you know, bungalows on all the lots. Like, you know, every writer had a bungalow. Every staff writer did. Um, and I'm wondering, like, do they still do bungalows on lots? Anyone? Anyone? I, don't I know. doubt it. Doubt it, yeah. Uh, More room for green screens. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was so cool. I love movies kind of showing behind the scenes of old Hollywood uh, because, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, I do long for those older movies, those like very, uh, very studio pictures. Whereas now mm. you, you call something a studio picture and it's going to be a Marvel movie or a Will Smith movie. Um, and, but like, you know, I love I love the term studio picture because I envision those those bungalows. Mm. I envision Betty and Joe walking through the sets as they're being built at night. They're walking through a western set, and then or like you know, in, in uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure when he's riding through the studio lot and he's like going through all sorts of different movies, you know, stuff like that. I think that's so uh, romantic. It's such a romanticized notion of what Hollywood uh, was. And I can't imagine is anymore. Um, it's all just like warehouses filled with, you know, giant green walls, I suppose. Um, I want to talk about how this is, are we calling Sunset Boulevard a noir? Is this a noir? I don't think it's a noir completely. I think it has noir elements, okay. just like it has romance elements, it has comedy it's, you know, tragedy, it's gothic horror. It's got all these, I think it's extremely unique. And I, I don't, I wouldn't consider it a noir. Okay. Uh, what about you, Carmelita? I agree. I think it's, it has those elements, the narration, you know, the, the, that opening scene specifically yeah. and the narration throughout. So it has, it has touches of that, but I wouldn't say that it's like a straight up noir. Well, I was going to say, I, I love these pictures that could be considered noirs, but aren't, you know, because like when you think of a noir, you think of, uh, you know, um, old cop films, yeah. like straight up crime films. Um, but like, I love these types of noirs, like Sunset Boulevard, like uh, Sweet Smell of Success, where... It's, you know, it's sort of darker subject material and we're dealing with, you know, darker characters, but not necessarily 
um, the the picture isn't necessarily centered around a crime. You know, I suppose you could say that about Sunset Boulevard because it does open up with the dead body floating in the pool and we're leading up to that point. But I think it's it's so much more. I, I Vinny, I think you're exactly right. Like, it's such a unique story in that it's equal parts like 17 different things. And, yeah. it, and it does it well. I think here's the other thing. So many movies try to do that, but Sunset Boulevard does it perfectly. It matches and it, it marries everything perfectly together. And it comes together at the end where you're just like, ah. that was one of the most entertaining things because it does hit all the sweet spots, all of them in equal parts. Um, and so it's a very, very special movie, but I do like the aspect that this sure, this could be a noir movie like sweet smell is a noir movie. And I, I like thinking of, um, movies that could be considered noir or neo-noir, uh, but aren't necessarily crime centered. Mm. Um, now here, here's another question I want to ask. Why doesn't Joe just walk away? Mm, I love, I love pondering the psychology of Joe Gillis. <laughs> Cause I, I, there's, there's a lot of meat on the bone. He's, I think, you know, initially he seems to think that he's put one over on Norma by getting her to offer him this job and thinking he's going to get this $500 a week and that he's going to be able to milk this for all it's worth. Little does Joe know. <laughs> he has not entered into your normal employment agreement. Um, and, you know, the red, but the red flags are mounting very quickly. All the red flags of what this arrangement actually is. And, and I think initially he's in a lot of denial. Just like he would accuse Norma of being deluded. He's, he's got his fair share of denial because all of the red flags are there very early when they bring all his stuff there. And then they move him into that, you know, just, just one thing after another. He never gets any, he, she never gives him any money. Like, like payment, like wages. She buys him things and gifts, but she doesn't give him any money. Like you're not her, you're not her employee. <laughs> you're in an arrangement. <laughs> You know, you're, you know, you're a kept man. And, and I think he doesn't want to admit that to himself at first, because if he admits that to himself, then he goes back to the reality, which is that he cannot afford to keep his car. He cannot afford to stay in LA. He has lost his touch for writing or he thinks he has. And if you think you have, and that means you don't write, then you're definitely not going to get it back. He's trying to put off the inevitable move back to Ohio. And I think he keeps holding on to this setup is worth these little compromises. And, 
you know, so he lets it he lets it go far beyond what he had originally intended. And then he's kind of trapped. But I think also there is a point at which I think he knows that he's been using her. And I think once her feelings for him are out in the open, I think I think he does care for her in his own way, not the way she wants him to. Right. And he's still very willing to continue taking her money um, and her, her gifts. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of internal conflict in Joe. There's, he has a lot of internal conflict around Betty. Do they, and do, do they do it? Do they slap skins? Have they slept together? Him and Norma? Yeah. Yeah. Do they? Okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. A lot. And you know they can't be that explicit about it, right? Because it's the it's, it's 1950. 1950, yeah. So at the New Year's Eve party, after she has slit her wrists, uh, and he races back from this this young party, he could have stayed at Artie's house. He was out. Yeah, he like, was free. Yeah, and been like, "Peace, keep my stuff. I don't need it." No, when when Max tells him, "Madame slit her wrists," he rushes back there whatever guilt or whatever mix of emotions he feels about the part he's played in her suicide attempt, he comes back. He says, happy new year, Norma. And she says, happy new year, darling. And she puts her arms around him and yeah, they bone right after she, she cuts. Absolutely. And you know, one of the next scenes we see, is he's at the pool. She has filled the pool for him. <laughs> William Holden comes out of that water. And like all the sexy pool boy that he is. Yeah. Hot damn. He looks good in those swim trunks. <laughs> Let me just <laughs> say it. I, I've been in love with William Holden like my whole life. So. Oh, he's so cool. Okay. It's a, it's a glorified moment, but, but she comes up behind him. There's like a physical, the way she touches him and he lets her touch him. Yeah. Yeah. These people have sex on the regular. <laughs> Don't question it. It happens. Good for her. Good for her. Uh, mm -hmm. Vinny, you're a, you're a young man. You're single. 18. Uh, you're 18. That's right. <laughs> He's of legal age, uh, Miss, uh, Miss Desmond. Um, you're in this situation. What do you do? Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, I can see where, you know, it's... It's William Holden's character is feeling like he's he's got the upper hand. He's the one doing the manipulating. He goes, okay, I can just hang out with this lady and do what she needs me to do, and I get a place to live and money and blah, blah, blah. But she's also the one that's saying, okay, I can manipulate him. I can make him do my bidding. I can He can stay here, be my kind of like gigolo kind of thing. And uh, so I think it's it's one of those things where I don't know if I would say no. You know, it's a place to live and, <laughs> and, and he's, he's lost everything. You know, that the movie starts with him, basically the creditors taking everything away and he's trying to borrow money to keep his car. Um, so, you know, he's essentially homeless. He's, his career is dead and he sees this as an opportunity to keep going for a little bit longer. And I get it. Uh, do you let her touch you when you come out of the swim pool in those tiny trunks? If I look like William Holden, anyone can touch me. <laughs> I don't even care. It's a public service. Yeah, public go service ahead. Doing. <laughs> I'm a golden boy. That's good. 
Uh, Golden Boy. Um, so yeah, that, I I always wondered because like at first he he he's running from the creditors, right? Pulls in, blows the tire, and like he's hiding out. But the tr- creditors find him. And they take his car. We see them take his car, and now, like, what he has, he can stop hiding because the car is gone. Uh, yet he makes that decision to stay because you know i'm still processing why does he stay um it's it's so the movie can finish sure so we get the conclusion but, but what other option does he have it's 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 facing something that he doesn't he's not ready to face his he when he's trying to sell the script yeah and he first he first meets the nancy olsen character it's she's like yeah it's it's garbage your script is garbage like kind of thing and it's like every every other studio has these generic stories that you're pitching so he's at a you know that point in his career where he's like i am stuck as a writer the success isn't there i've failed financially so it's it's him saying oh no i'm stuck i'm being essentially kidnapped and held hostage but really it's hey this is an easy way out of my my dire situation yeah yeah, uh, I, she, man, like she comes off. So again, my second time through, I'm I'm pro Norma Desmond. I am on her side completely, but she comes off as the crazy woman that she is, and like that to me, it's not just like uh, you know the setting making it a gothic kind of horror film. That lady's fucking bonkers, and she's super scary. Like when she's going full camp, her eyes are wide open, and like she doesn't blink. Yeah, there are times I swear to God where it's like she's gonna go full cannibal and just start munching on him. She's going to eat him. She's going to like slit his throat and just like suck his blood and literally eat his meat. And that's there's there's an aspect of her stardom like of that era like. Uh, like Rudy Valentino, like that kind of like, these are huge, huge stars. And so she's not used to, probably not used to people telling her no, essentially. Oh, true. Sure. So when she meets him, it's, she is playing a character. She's, she's being the, the Norman Desmond that she thinks people expect. So when she first meets him, she's full on this character within the movie and I'm not Gloria Swanson as the character Norman Desmond is playing a character right um and, and so it's it's very off-putting for Joe but you can tell that he's sort of okay let's see where this goes kind of thing like the the chimp funeral is the first thing but he's in this house and in the narration he's you know he's describing how strange this place is and how weird she is and how strange Max is like these are he's intrigued by it because I, I think that he's also what kind of wants to see this is a huge star and we don't have stars like that anymore because no. of how just oversaturated everything is with social media and the internet and yeah. 8,000 TV channels and you know all that stuff and so we don't have stars like these stars were back then for and that's well, I, him, I, him reflecting on his youth of seeing her versus definitely you know, like, oh yeah well, I, I think there's moments, there's there's moments where Norma slips, kind of tones it down, like she kind of slips into a more natural cadence, what we would interpret as more natural. Yeah. Where she kind of where she kind of lets the pose go. 
and and they have moments where they have this kind of banter um or where he talks about when they're watching her movies which okay yeah it's a little weird um but he talks about like her childish right. joy at watching a film and getting wrapped up in the film you know so i i think there's moments where where they there is a little bit of rapport there i think i wonder if it weren't for the Dr. Frankenstein that is Max, who's, I mean, and I love Max. He's a beautiful, sad, tragic character. But, I mean, he's been feeding this delusion for 20 years. Yeah. By the time Joe gets there, he's been resending the fan letters. He's never tells her no. He's been protecting this little bubble that she lives in. That, that no reality, like the modern world cannot permeate this bubble that Max is like tending and protecting at all costs. And I, I feel like, you know, Joe might feel differently about Norma if, if she weren't suffering from this like crushing depression and if she weren't, if she hadn't been completely cocooned in this delusion, it might, it, you know, he might feel differently because, yeah. you know, 50 is not old and, <laughs> and it's a nice house. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, yeah, she, she is a troubled person. And, and there's a great line that DeMille says before when, when they announced to him that Norma Desmond has come to see him, but she hasn't come into the, the studio yet. And he's the other guy says, so you could give her the brush. Yeah. I have and that he written says, down. Like 30 million, you know, like 30,000 fans gave her the brush. And he says, you don't know what she was like as a girl of 17. Wit and courage and, you know, more than any youngster I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. But he remembers who she was before the Hollywood system, before fandom, before then the loss of fandom you know, changed her, warped her. And then 20 years with Max feeding the delusion. I mean, you get a person who's has a very tenuous relationship with reality, but she's not a bad person. No, she just needs actual help and not fake fan letters. <laughs> if, if this movie were to have a bad guy, it, it would have to be Eric von Stroheim, um, Max, but he's doing it. He's protecting her, feeding her out of love. Yes. But he doesn't realize that, like, this is, you're, you're really fucking her up, my friend. Like, you are ruining her mentally. Um, it's, she's this way primarily, you know, obviously there was a little kernel in there somewhere, but my God, you have fed the beast and, like, you have had ample opportunity to get her the help that she might need now granted back uh back then the help that one might need uh would probably end up killing her with shock treatment and everything but right like so so i had i had written down is max delusional or and just as crazy as norma i think there's some love just as simple as that he, he loves her so much that he just wants her to be the Norma that he thinks that she needs to be. So he's, he's saying 
this is when she was her happiest, when she was the biggest star on earth. So I don't want her to lose that kind of thing. So that's why he's, he creates this world for her. But I, I don't think I he's think, crazy. I, I mean, I wouldn't say he's crazy. I wouldn't say she's crazy either. I would, I, you know, I would say he's got a little bit of a delusion too. Um, the delusion that if he keeps, if he can preserve this fantasy for her, that she'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the delusion that he can preserve it forever. I mean, that's not possible. That was never possible. Never, right. Um, and I, I think there's a part of him, you know, I think it is, he loves her. And that was, you know, her shining glorious years. And he wants to preserve that for her. But those were also his shining glorious years. True, yeah. And if if he can preserve that for her, then part of that, that part of him also gets preserved. Mm. When he was the director that, discovered her and who helped to make her a star and if he can continue you know he gets to live vicariously through that and he gets he gets to continue to feel that way about himself yeah um i i'm kind of torn about max because again i feel on the second watch, empathy for him. Uh, maybe may, actually, you know, maybe not empathy, more pity toward yeah. toward Max. I feel empathy toward um, Norma. I pity Max, but I think you're right. It, they're they're they both want the same thing, but I feel like, and Vinny, I'm with you on this. He's doing it out of love. But it's for completely selfish reasons, and mm. so absolutely. So if, like I said, big if, if we're gonna say this is the antagonist of the film, it's gonna be Max. But he's not. He's just he's so in love. He's not thinking clearly. Oh, he doesn't yeah. realize what he's doing. And I love like my first. I remember watching this for the first time. That reveal. Of him oh, saying, I yeah. was, you know, I directed her when she was, you know, 17, 18 years old. I was her first husband. I was just like, <gasps> like hand to my forehead. You know, I went yeah. full Norman Desmond. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, wow. What a <laughs> what a break. I love it. The- yeah. It's like a gut punch that first time. And then what I love about subsequent viewings is that once you once that once you've had that reveal you- and you know the truth about Max. Yeah you start seeing all the little clues (laughs) to the reality of who Max is and, and, and what his real past is. You start seeing all those little clues much earlier, Yeah, but you didn't know to look for them before. Right. Um, Okay. Real before we move past this, um, this section, (laughs) New Year's Eve, um, real weird. Like Max has cooked this gigantic like banquet, you know, this, and he set up this buffet with like, you know, there's there freaking cloches on plates and shit. Yeah. Like it's real fancy. Um, and then they got this string quartet playing and like, you know, uh, Gloria's in or uh, for God's sakes, Norma is in her beautiful gown, uh, all black, but beautiful gown. Uh, Joe is in his tux and they're dancing and then they have this kind of falling out and Gloria, um, Norma, Jesus Christ, 
Um, <laughs> people know who I'm talking about, right? Oh, they um, know. They know it's fine. Like, you know, she storms out, stomps out of the room on that tile. You know, they make it, uh, they have to talk about, you know, the tile is great for tango or something like that. So she storms out and slams the door. And this is n- not important. But all the while, the string quartet is going. They don't stop for anything. And then, oh. like, like when uh, they... There's another line like Max says something about don't let the don't let when when um she she slits her wrists and then Joe comes back and Max is like don't let the string quartet know what is happening yeah and he tells them not to run up the stairs and they're still playing don't let don't let on because the band is still playing and you don't want we don't want them to know that so, anything so happened. they're like the they're like the musicians on the Titanic as the Titanic's going down the musicians are still playing. These guys, they're they're there. They know there's no way out. They're trapped. When they realized, when they looked at their union um, schedule and saw, oh, fuck, we have to play at Norma Desmond's house. We're dead. We're never getting out of there. (laughs) So, like, we're going to play until we're dead. I just thought that was funny. Um, uh, Again, not uh, important at all. The other thing, so let's talk about the ending here. Uh, Joe calls Betty. and Or or Betty calls Joe. (laughs) Norma. Norma, Norma calls. calls. There we go. <laughs> um, but the way Joe says her address, yeah, really bothered me. He goes, uh, "It's ten thousand eighty-six Sunset Boulevard." Again, this is not important. But who in God's name says an address like that? <laughs> I live at eighty-nine twenty-nine. Valley Street. I grew up at 15307 Knoll Road. I didn't grow up at 1500 or 15307 <laughs> Knoll Road. Okay, I don't live at 4814 Valley Street. Who says 10086 Sunset Boulevard? I'm sorry. It just drove me bonkers. I had to rewind. I was like, "What the fuck did he just say?" Did he just say the address like that? Um, he just said the address like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love how it's written and how uh, Billy shoots at Billy. We're on a first name basis. Me and me and Bill, we're good. We're good friends. Mister Wilder shoots it. Um, how Joe, it's like Joe is pushing Betty away at the end. You know, you, this is your script. Do your, you know, you can do it all by yourself. He's pushing her away almost as if he knows he's going to die. He knows like there's no way, there's no safe way out of this. I'm not getting out of this situation alive. And I, I don't know if, if that's really the case, but I, I don't know. I picked up on that this afternoon when I was watching that. I was like, oh my gosh, is this a thing or am I just reading too much into it? But I loved that I was reading that from it. I thought it was really cool. Like he knew this, there's no, because you think about Joe, you know, we've talked about it. He has nothing, no car, no apartment. Like where does he have to go? And things are progressively getting worse at the Desmond residence. Uh, so it's almost like he's pushing Betty away to keep her safe because things aren't going to go well here. 
Comments. Comments. Questions. I've I've always read what Joe does here is his his shot at at some kind of redemption. Mm. Like I, I I agree with you that he like he ha- he knows he has nowhere else to go. I think he was sincere after Betty leaves about him trying to leave. Um, but you know, he has nothing to offer Betty, and really, Betty has a very nice fiance. He's gonna be Joe Friday soon. Hap- <laughs> you know, she was yeah, she was happy in her relationship until the distraction of Joe Gillis came along. At least we, we're given that impression. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, I think he's finally, I think he's finally coming to terms with, I did a bad thing here. I did a bad thing getting into this arrangement with Norma, knowing that my heart's not in it and that I'm taking advantage. I, I did a bad thing getting involved with Betty when she's in, you know, engaged to his friend and engaged to his friend. And she's, she's got that youthful idealism and she's just starting out and she hasn't had a chance to see if her writing can go anywhere. He's already tried and, and knows that, yeah, it's probably not going to pan out for him. Um, and I, I think that him pushing Betty away, the flippant way that he gives her the tour and that he just finally lays it out you know, what the arrangement is. Um, you know, I, I think he's trying to redeem, do one redeemable thing. Hmm. That's That's been my take. Vinny, thoughts? I've always interpreted it as, like, he's that's him giving up. Like, he goes, mm-hmm. okay, I've stopped the bleeding for this long. You know, where the movie starts, where the, he's, the creditors are pretty much shutting him down. He's like, okay, I've extended my career, my life in LA this this long. Okay, that's it. I'm going to Ohio, kind of thing. And he can't he can't leave if he still has those. If he knows that Betty has that feeling towards him, that's why he's like kind of like pushing her away. Like, nope, you don't want to be involved with me. I'm leaving. I, I'm not doing this anymore, kind of thing. I don't think I don't personally think that he knew that he was going to die. But I figured he figured this is it. I'm just going to leave and start over. End of the road. Yep. He saw himself dead in the pool at the beginning. Of course he knew he was going to die. The movie, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's how it works. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. What? I have to rewatch this damn thing. <laughs> um, okay. See, I mean, just even this conversation right here is one of the things that's so beautiful about this film and watching it and rewatching it and discussing it with people is the psychological aspects mm. of this film. And all the different ways to read these characters and those scenes. Mm. I mean, that's one of the things that I love about this. Yeah. And 70 years later. Yeah, yeah. 70 years later, we can be having this conversation and we all kind of took something a little different from that same scene. And I guarantee you, you'll watch it again and some some other aspect will pop out and will make you kind of question like, hmm, how does that change how I see this? Yeah. It's great. Uh, my last note is I love the ending. Joe's dead. Uh, they they kind of con her, the cops and and uh, Max con her into thinking, Mr. DeMille's here. He's going to film you. You need to come downstairs. You know, the cameras are here. And she's walking downstairs. Uh, I, I haven't 
uh, I was a bad host this week. I didn't really do any sort of research, but um, she's walking in slow motion, but it, I don't think it's filmed in slow motion, right? Everybody is acting like they're in slow motion because the guy with the lights following her, you can see him kind of struggling and shaking to hold the lights as he's following her. And so I like it how it's playing in slow motion, but as far as I could tell, it's it's not like they didn't film at normal speed and then slowed it down in post. It looked like they're playing this so dramatically and it, oh my yeah. gosh, it is so beautiful. Be yeah. It's breathtaking. It is so gorgeous to watch that happen. This gorgeous staircase and all these kind of extras lined along and she's walking through the crowd. And so I'm just she's gliding, gliding. Yes. Yeah. She's, it's very ethereal. She's like this, this, uh, it's almost like she's a ghost and she's floating down the stairs. And I can just imagine uh, the the actress, Gloria Swanson, not not the character Norma Desmond, the actress, Gloria Swanson, going through that and like walking slowly. And and as as you two can see, you should be doing this with me. It feels very good when you're moving this slowly. Anyways, I don't, it's just <laughs> it's really cool to think about that and yeah. watch that happen is it was really, really, really beautiful. No, it's gorgeous. Some of the cinematography in this film. And that's that's one of the great examples. Yeah, it's yeah, I I I haven't read up on a lot of like the real technical details, just kind of kind of some production history, but not like those very technical, technical details. Right. But it looks like a lot of those the press and the detectives, it looks like they're standing perfectly still. Yeah. Like everyone is perfectly still or, or their movement is just barely perceptible. And yes, she's gliding ever so like slowly down the stairway. And there's there's all these beautiful images too. And and there's one in that in the beginning of that scene when she's still upstairs and they cook up the idea to to let her believe that she's gonna be filming a scene in a film. Um, but there's all these shots of mirrors of Norma Desmond looking in mirrors, and we either see her full face in a particular pose or expression, or we see just her eye or just her jawline. And I, I love how throughout this film, there's all these moments where, where there's this distance. Norma is at a distance or we only see her features. We like, we're not, we don't get to really connect with Norma full on face to face. Yeah. We're seeing her through a mirror or all the times where she's up in a balcony or far off in a window looking from above and her head's in the clouds and she's distant. All these visual cues throughout the film that, that do so much beautiful storytelling mm. for us in this film. Yeah. It's just awesome. Uh, final thoughts, Vinny? Uh, I think that it is a perfect film every time I watch it. And uh, there's one one moment that I like that we kind of touched on is when she goes back to uh, Paramount Studios. And it's like the little things that people say, like, oh, I thought she was dead kind of thing. <laughs> but then there's other people like uh, Hawkeye, the guy that's up in the rafters. And he goes, oh, Miss Desmond, do you remember me? And she, it's my one of my favorite line deliveries in the whole movie where she goes, he goes, it's me, Hawkeye. And she goes, hello, Hawkeye. Like that. <laughs> just like, it's so, it's so good. And it's perfect for her character that she, you can kind of see like 
this is what she wants. That's all that she wants is that recognition and like, see, I am a star kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts, Carmelita. Oh, I mean, this is a masterpiece. And, you know, I, I always like to say that this is a film you can watch. Even if you're not well-versed in silent film or that real early cinema, you can watch this even if you don't get all the cameos because there's a ton of cameos in this. Um, a lot of references to that old, old, early pre-code Hollywood. Um, you can still enjoy this. Pretend that they're fictional. Mm-hmm. Um, but this film is a great springboard to then go and seek out those old silent films. For sure. Um this time around in preparation, I went out and watched a couple Eric von Stroheim films. Oh. Um, Cause I had never actually, like I knew he was a director and an actor in real life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of his, the meta of his history. And it was really cool to actually like watch his work. And that's one of the great legacies of legacies of this film too, is that, you can enjoy it just for what it is, the, the mastery and the art that it is. But it can also be this, this opening to take an interest in all of the things that this film is referencing. Yeah. And it's, 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 really, it's really awesome to do that. I, I've really enjoyed that over the years. I, uh, I'd like to think that Norma Desmond and Louise Brooks were friends. And how wild they they would party together. Oh, I um, love that idea. Yeah. With with Buster Keaton because he was obviously friends with Norma because this yeah. movie co-stars Buster Keaton. I he's, love him and HB Warner. HB Warner, mm-hmm. yeah. He's in there. Oh yeah, there's all kinds of really cool little yeah. cameos. Had a hopper. I didn't even realize that even the second time I'm while watching that I was going through IMDb. I was like, what the fuck? So I had to I jumped a couple scenes back. I was like, oh my god. Um, he really doesn't talk. Interesting. Uh, okay, let's move on to the second part of our program here. We're going to, uh, each of us came up with two, yes, two, um, mm-hmm. pairing recommendations that we would like to share with the listeners. Uh, something maybe you would watch along with Sunset Boulevard and uh, Carmelita, you are our distinguished guest. I would like for you to go first and share with us your first pairing recommendation. Ooh, I had a lot of fun with this. So, you know, I, I kind of thought along the lines of a theme, as you do here at the Cult Movies Podcast. And kind of the theme I went with was Aging Divas on the Edge. Uh, so my first pairing recommendation is a film adaptation of a Tennessee Williams play, uh, Sweet Bird of Youth from 1962, uh, directed and written by Richard Brooks, as I mentioned, adapted from a Tennessee Williams play, starring Paul Newman, Geraldine Page, Shirley Knight, Ed Begley, Rip Torn. <laughs> this film. It has, it has that Southern Gothic quality to it. It's got 
kind of that sultry Tennessee Williams sleaze to it where it's not smut, but there's like that. <laughs> I don't know. There's something like there's that, that risque something bubbling under the surface. And, and this film is kind of funny because Geraldine page plays the aging starlet who's who's just had her comeback and is hiding out because her comeback didn't go well and Geraldine Page was only in her late 30s <laughs> she's in this so <laughs> she's not even old but but she's they talk about her like she's middle-aged and and she does have this very dramatic diva qualities to her and she's unlike Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard she does not want anyone to call her Alexandra DeLargo. She's going by an assumed name. She's hiding out. She's drunk. She's on drugs. Paul Newman is supplying her with booze and drugs. <laughs> he is her gigolo companion. And they're hiding out in the, in the Gulf. Uh, this movie is sweaty. It's <laughs> tawdry. You have the corrupt, the corrupting influence of the film industry. And then you also have the corruption of local politics because they have landed in his Paul Newman's character's hometown. Oh, his name's chance, by the way, in his hometown <laughs> and the local corrupt politician is trying to run them out. It's this movie's gorgeous. Uh, Just trust me when I tell you it's, it's a good pairing. Tennessee Williams was always sweaty, drunk and horny, right? Just judging by all the plays of his that I've read. Uh, uh, I love it. Have you I feel like he and I would have been best friends. <laughs> I really do. I really do. I think he and I could have been the best of friends. Have you seen this, Vinny? Oh, of course. Of course? Yes, what What do you course. mean, of course? I've, I've never even heard of this. Yes. Yes. Uh, dang. Okay. Uh, Blu-ray? Is it on Blu-ray, Vinny? I don't believe yeah, okay. so. I, I got it in the Tennessee Williams box set. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Box yeah. Set. It is streaming right now on HBO Max. Oh, excellent. New subscriber mm -hmm. right here. I will have to partake. Excellent. Yeah, this looks... It's um, like two hours, and but it's Tennessee Williams, so it's a lot of dialogue, and it yeah. goes right by. Yeah. No, I, um, you know, being a, a theater guy, I love, love... David Mamet is my guy, is my uh, favorite playwright, but Tennessee Williams is just... I mean, again... Sweaty, drunk, and horny. You can't go wrong. What yeah. a combination. No, you'll dig this. I mean, Geraldine Page and, and Paul Newman smoking hashish. Come on. <laughs> it happens in this movie. And she talks very frankly about the sex they've had. Like, it's, yes, watch this movie. Uh, and, yeah, Shirley Knight as a character called Heavenly Finley. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Whew, Shirley Knight. I, big old crush on that one. Uh, very good. Thank you. Uh, that is Sweet Bird of Youth. All right, Vinny, let's hear your first pairing recommendation. Okay, so I came up with four because I don't follow the rules, but three <laughs> of them are from 1975. Okay, okay. But I'm not going to go with those. So my <laughs> first pairing is going to be uh, from 1982. It's the Rainer Werner Fassbinder film, Veronica Voss. I almost went with that, yes. Yes, so it's very, very much the same movie. Uh, Veronica Voss is a aging film star. She meets a writer on a train and sort of 
lures him in to kind of be her lover and she's more neurotic as time goes on and she has all these people around her kind of feeding into her craziness and uh takes place in like post-war germany um so it's it's a little bit darker there's a lot more um more evil aspects of the people in her life it's like a bunch of maxes but they're all trying to kill her essentially um (laughs) but veronica it's 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 very late for Fassbender. He, he died probably a year or two after it came out. It's, the, it's on Blu-ray from Criterion Collection. It's a fantastic movie, but it's, a, it's like a darker, more depressing version of the same story. I love depressing. This one, so I, I, yeah, I have uh, over the past year been writing a, a column at F This Movie about 1982 movies, and this was always on the cusp of, like, I, I wanted to write about this. I, I didn't get to it. Um, and so I haven't seen it yet, but I was like, oh my gosh, the timing for this episode is so perfect because, um, like it was number 53, basically. If, if there's one movie that I would have ended up hating, Veronica Voss would have taken its place. But anyways, uh, so I still need to see it, but I'm very, very excited. Have you seen Veronica Voss, Carmelita? I have not. And now I have to. Yeah. Um, okay, so for my first one, uh, speaking of the Criterion Collection, I'm going with, so I kind of went with um, Burned Out Stars. And uh, I didn't go with uh, Burned Out Women Stars. I, I did two guys. Uh, but my first one is one of my all-time favorite movies. It's coming out um, on the Criterion Collection uh, in May maybe I think, uh, but it is Bertrand uh, Tavernier's Round Midnight from 1986 starring Dexter Gordon. Um, great, great, one of the greatest tenor players. Um, and it co-stars Francois Clouset. Herbie Hancock is sort of, um, uh, he's, he's part of the band, uh, but it's, you know, it's real jazz musicians. You got Ron Carter in there, Freddie Hubbard, um Bobby Hutcherson like it's it's a who's who of of great classic players that were still around in the late 80s but it's <clears throat> it's loosely based on the lives of Lester Gordon or Lester Gordon Lester Young and uh, another great tenor player from the uh, 30s and bebop days and then Bud Powell a piano player from the bebop days and they uh had they were some of the greatest musicians of their time but they had real bad substance abuse problems and they they burned almost every bridge they had here in america in uh, especially new york and los angeles so they fled basically to paris and that's where they lived out their final days uh just playing in small clubs in paris and so this script uh co-written by tavernier is loosely based on their lives. Dexter Gordon plays this character called Dale uh, Turner, and uh, he's befriended by uh, Clouset and his daughter. And they, you know, Clouset, basically he thinks he can save Dale Turner from his alcoholism um, and tries to get him back to the great jazz musician that he was. But, uh, you know, spoilers, it doesn't happen. 
Um, this movie is it's slow and it's sad and it is just one of my all time favorites. When I was playing full time, uh, I used to play jazz full time. Um, we would always after after we'd close the clubs down, we'd go back to one of our apartments and we'd either watch this or we'd watch Bird or Mo Better Blues and sit around and drink. Uh, but like this movie, if you haven't seen it, prepare to get that new Blu-ray because it is it is such a beautiful, beautiful movie, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Around midnight, uh, it's it's so so great um anyone seen that i haven't no and i i've heard of it and it needs to move to the top of my list it's really good Vinny, have you seen it i have i have heard of it and i always thought it was a concert movie oh yeah um, I, I had no idea that it had like a full dramatic plot to it i always i've seen the the disc and i've seen the poster always assumed it was a concert film so yeah I'm, no I'm intrigued. i mean there's there's lots of great live music because there's you know it's the real deal but the the storyline is so good so um pre- really prepare to get that disc when it comes out this summer uh Carmelita let's go with your second one so this is a wild pick and I'm so excited to talk about it with you and I rewatched this. I want you to know that I rewatched this just to make sure that this is really what I wanted to recommend here. And I absolutely do. It's uh, the driver's seat, or as it was originally titled in Italy, Identikit from 1974. It is directed by Giuseppe Patroni Griffey, starring Elizabeth Taylor, Ian Bannon. There's a cameo by Andy Warhol. So this it's an Italian psychological drama and it's a non-linear narrative. The story jumps between uh, this character, Lise, plays by Elizabeth Taylor, this middle-aged woman who's on this, going on this trip to Rome. And then it cuts and jumps to the police investigation into what happened to lease on her trip oh shit but (laughs) i mean this this movie is it's really interesting because there's not much to the least character we don't know anything about her person like her backstory it's like we jump right to her buying this psychedelic dress that everybody in the movie likes to comment on the rest of the time um so we know nothing about lease so it gets it there's this strange thing that happens where when I'm watching it I forget that it's Elizabeth Taylor playing a character. Mm. Like it becomes this like Elizabeth Taylor unhinged. It's I it's a really interesting experience watching this movie and Elizabeth Taylor is one of my favorites. I idolize this woman. And it's just, this is a wild performance. She is, she's like emotionally all over the place. And she's, she's got this very, like all the people she meets along the way, the way she interacts with them and the men that come on to her and how she um, is just, uh, I don't know. 
I, I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> I want to say the film is wild and it's campy and it's Elizabeth Taylor in her early forties and she's gorgeous. Yeah. And you get to see her in a see-through slip, like the top. So that's some, it's a bonus. Good, good. Watch it. Good, good. Vinny, I see this is on your watch list. You haven't seen yes. it? I've been um, on watch this for a long time. It's, it's my favorite era of Elizabeth Taylor's career. Yeah. Is like from Virginia Woolf to like the mid seventies. Like that's, she was just playing like real characters for the first, she was doing movies like, reflections in a golden eye and boom yeah. like things and uh like it, these really interesting like bizarro movies to some extent so it's so it's been i'm gonna watch this for a long time but i just haven't had a chance to actually see it i think uh i've been wanting to do uh an e uh marathon e as richard burton used to refer to her by the way if you're not following richard burton diaries on twitter it's like the greatest thing um, it's sad. Oh my but, God. But what is this? Cool. It's, uh, somebody that has Richard Burton's diaries and I, I, I'm pretty sure it's a book you can get, but it's somebody just posting little snippets, uh, from, you know, that day from either when he was a kid or when he's married okay. to Elizabeth. It's yeah, awesome. Check that out. It's really cool. I'm pulling that up right now. But I remember the first, <laughs> the first time I talked to Kristen, uh, we talked about, um, uh, Joan Crawford Western, the hell's it called? Johnny Guitar. Johnny Guitar, and w- uh-huh. one of her pairing recommendations was Boom, which I love. Boom, which I haven't seen yet, but I own oh. that Shout Select Blu-ray. So yes. I'm like, I've been wanting to rewatch uh, Virginia Woolf, and so maybe with that, and then this movie, Driver's Seat, and then Boom, do a little triple. Maybe I'll do that for my birthday weekend. Nice. Um, but oh, I'm I'm with you guys. I. God, I love her so much. Talk about a gay icon. By the way, I'm not gay, people. I just like gay icons, I guess. I guess that's that's the thing here tonight. Um, you got good taste. That's right. <laughs> Gosh, that's the smartest thing anyone's ever said to me. Right. Um, yeah, no, I'm obsessed with her. So <laughs> if you're even like, if you love Elizabeth Taylor, you need to see this. Yeah. It's uh, like nothing else. Uh, okay. Vinny, number two for you, sir. All right. This is tough, but I'm going to go with a, a, it used to be hard to see movie, but not anymore, um, is, uh, John Byram's 1975 film inserts Ah. with Richard Dreyfuss, Bob Hoskins, Valerie, um, not Val. I don't know why I was going to say Valerie Harper. (laughs) It's not Valerie Harper. Um, anyway, Jessica, uh, it's, Jessica Harper and uh it's about a sort of the same era it's it takes place like it's like just as uh talking pictures are kind of coming in so it's somebody from the beginning of silent that didn't quite make the transition he's like this Richard Dreyfuss plays this uh kind of wonder boy is what they call him he was like this young stud uh filmmaker that got this money from a studio and then never really did anything and he's living in a dilapidated mansion, um, and he's making uh, porn. Uh, he's doing uh, like stag film. So the whole thing takes place in the mansion, and it's the people that are coming and going, the actors that are in his films, and uh, the people that are producing the films. And so uh, it's a very dark uh, film, dark comedy, I would say. Uh, but uh, it's it has the same feel of 
somebody that had that promise and was going to be a star and is no longer a star, mm. but he's kind of accepted the fact like he's turning his back on the Hollywood system, but the Hollywood system actually is still interested in him, but he's like, no, it's, this is what I'm going to do now. But it's a very graphic film. It's NC 17. Uh, it is on Blu-ray. It is on DVD. Um, but I definitely recommend inserts. Nice. Yeah. This has been on my watch list for a long time. And, uh, just because I was hoping to see Richard Dreyfuss's wiener in it, but I don't. I don't think that's NC, the case. NC seventeen is a plus. That's absolutely that's, not a... that's a plus. Yes, <laughs> that's not a knock against the thing. That's a that's a that's like a bonus. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, I've been wanting to see this for a long time. Um, okay, my second one <clears throat> did a little different thing here. So I was I was gonna thinking about you know burnout i was gonna do um my favorite year from 1982 which i love i love that uh, movie. great great movie and it lines up that's the last movie in my that i'm writing about for this series at f this movie um so i was gonna do that i i was also thinking eight million ways to die you know thinking of a burned out character jeff jeff bridges playing a burned out um you know cop in in a this great 80s cop movie uh, but then uh, I found, I was just looking through my watch list. I had like a free slot on a weekend. I was like, I ha- I can watch whatever the hell I want. And I wanted to watch a documentary. And it just so happened. I was like, uh, uh, this Dennis Hopper documentary popped up. And I was like, that man I love <laughs> so much. Talk about crazy. Um, and you know, we might not share the same, uh, political views, you know, of course his later years, but, um, I think he's a creative genius. And so I, I turned on, on the Criterion channel along for the ride from 2016. And it is the most like interesting way to put together a documentary. So it's, it's directed and edited by this guy, Nick Ebeling. Uh, but it's uh hopper's like one of his best friends uh his name is satya uh, de la manitou and they met like just before uh hopper and his crew went down to peru to film the last movie and if you haven't seen the last movie you have to watch the last movie it's 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 a masterpiece um and so the documentary doesn't cover like Dennis Hopper's full career. It covers from along for the, or um, the last movie uh, up to when he died. And so it's like, it covers his blacklist years basically, because what happened Mm. is that he went down, he was given, you know, a blank check basically to make this movie, this last movie. And like studios fought over it. Uh, because the script was was genius he wrote it with uh who he co-wrote easy rider with and so they go down to peru and they shoot this movie and i talked about the last movie on on an episode with heather drain back on the first season if if anybody wants to go back and listen to that um but he dennis hopper meets satya like right before they go to Peru and they hit it off and, and Satya just eats, he starts out almost like a, a hanger on, but he's, he becomes good friends and 
he helps out on the film sets that Hopper's on and, you know, they party together and, you know, do lots of drugs and blah, blah, blah. But so it's basically Satya going around and talking to, every, you know, people who would speak about working with Dennis Hopper from the last movie on and like how difficult he was and um you know people who were happy to kind of see him get a redemption you know starting with um blue velvet right and so it's really really touching it's very moving this this satya character this guy you could tell he really really loved dennis hopper and it was it's such a good documentary and you know it's uh you develop this sympathy for this guy who all for all intents and purposes doesn't really deserve your sympathy because he was a fucking crazy man. Like, you know, he threatened to kill so many people, but like his, you know, girlfriends and wives and like Dennis Hopper was super fucked up. Uh, but you develop this sympathy for him because, you know, he was treated unfairly in Hollywood, although he, you know, may have brought it on himself for this, uh, endless editing session from the last movie but anyways uh along for the ride is a very very great touching documentary uh have has anyone watched this yet i haven't no it sounds really good i didn't heard of it yeah i i i probably I you're gonna go with the american dreamer when you started talking about it dennis hopper like, documentary right yeah uh that's I haven't seen American Dreamer yet, but I absolutely have to because I'm obsessed with the last movie. Uh, but yeah, I would so recommend Along for the Ride because it it's, um, uh, you know, if you read uh, Raging Bulls and Easy Rider, or Easy Riders or Raging Bulls, like it's like Biskin hates everybody in that book, and so he paints everybody in a horrible light. But this, like, you can see how crazy Hopper was, but it's told from the perspective of somebody who really, really cared about him and who was heartbroken, like when he, when he passed away. So, uh, it's really, really great. It's streaming right now on Criterion. Uh, I highly recommend it. I'm going to stop talking. No, I'm not. I got to wrap this up. Um, Carmelita, (laughs) not quite my friend. Yeah. We're not done yet. Uh, Carmelita, thank you once again. This was such a great conversation. I love hanging out with you. Where can people find you online? The feeling is so mutual. Thank you again for having me back. So cult movies podcast listeners can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. Same handle for both at Carmelita Says. Uh, and Vinny? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Vinny But Better. I, I also have links to my Letterboxd on there, and I'll be having a new YouTube channel starting probably by the time this episode comes out. Exciting stuff. Uh, Look for those links in the show description. My friends, you can find this show on Twitter and Instagram at cold movies pod. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram and letterboxd at a K Donnelly. That's a K D O N E L L Y next week. uh, My good friend, Mark Bagley from wake up heavy is coming in for the first time. And we're going to discuss, I'm sorry, you're not going to be here, Vinny, but we're recording during the day. Um, I I assume you're going to be working, but we're going to talk about Elliot Gould. I know you're the perfect person. I know. I know. Maybe maybe we could work some out. Uh, Elliot Gould, Robert Altman, The Long Goodbye. 
Um, and once again, I'm going to ask the question on this episode, is Sterling Hayden a good actor? He just seems to keep showing Whoa. up on this show. Um, <laughs> Sterling Hayden is fantastic. Sterling Hayden is an actor. Sterling Hayden took a little nugget of talent and made a 40 year career out of it. Sterling Hayden did take a little nugget of talent, a little nugget of talent and, and, and turned goes, it into a 40. This is where I am. And this, I can do this for 40 years. <laughs> you know what? No one has ever brought that up or put it like that because we have talked about Sterling Hayden a fuck ton on this show. Now I love Sterling Hayden. Um, but I don't know if he's a good actor, but okay. Vinny, you just put that perfectly. Like the man did what he did for a really long time and yeah. good on him. That's something. King of the Gypsies. Something. 1978. King of the Gypsies. Okay. Eric Roberts movie. Okay. Sterling Hayden plays his grandfather. Okay. It is legitimately a fantastic performance. Okay, good. He doesn't always give a fantastic performance because he didn't have to. <laughs> He just has to be cool. That's there you go. I mean, it. I'm cool with I'm cool with Sterling Hayden. I'd rather watch William Holden. Yes. Yes. Well, I yeah. agree with that. Yeah. But yeah. you know, we all have our preferences. Uh I wonder if Norma Desmond would would touch Sterling Hayden like she touched William Holden. Like Sterling Hayden yeah, I mean, from the might. killing. You know, back then. Not Sterling Hayden from The Long Goodbye, because he's real gross in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh Carmelita. Vinny, thank you both so much. Thank you. Oh, the wild.